Let's pray. Father God, we praise your holy name. We thank you for your word given to us. We, we give it back to you as we hear it and we apply it to our lives. Lord, let it become uh, a, a living sacrifice in our lives as, uh, as we obey that which you've given us, as we learn more about who you are, Lord. We thank you. We f- pray that you fill us with your Holy Spirit. Pray you'd fill this place, fill us up, that we would be effective tools in your hand. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, you ready? Today we will be examining three kings from the Orient. Or were they magi? Or wise men? What is a magi anyways? Anyway, there were three of them. Uh, We know this because in every manger scene that you purchase at the store, there are three in every set that you buy, right? These three oriental wise magi kings, who were pagans, by the way, only had intellectual pursuits in mind as they made their way to the manger and got there just in time to shake hands with the shepherds who were about to depart for Jerusalem to spread the good news. And I believe the little drummer boy arrived shortly thereafter. And being a tad late, you don't really find him in any of the manger sets that you buy or see. How much of this is true? And maybe some bits and parts mixed in with a whole lot of tradition and maybe some scholarly rhetoric just for a little salt into the mix. Told and retold, melded into a cute story with adorable little characters and those little sheep that are all fuzzy and stuff. And this is a picture. This is the picture that most of America, most of the the city around us is going to be celebrating this Christmas. All the decorations, all, all the uh, cuteness, all, uh, the precious moments manger scene, right? That's what they think about when they think about Christmas. All of this at which scholars rebel in such an effort to expose all of the error, then they, they go completely in the other direction sometimes, and, and they, they often will neglect possible applications, or they will even draw their own assumptions about these three men, or three men? Hmm. Uh, these guys who come, and, and everything that was happening in this passage. And what I want us to do today is take a serious look at the text that we have in front of us. I want us to have an exercise in good hermeneutics. You all have a hermeneutic, whether or not you know it. And it's how you interpret what you read. How you interpret what you read. We, We want to look at this passage. We want to look at the text and its context and understand what Matthew wrote and perhaps why he wrote it the way he did. Let's go ahead and open our Bibles up to Matthew chapter 2. I'm going to start at verse 1. Let's stand up for the reading of God's word. Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 1, says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." 
Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother. They fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. A reading of God's word. Go ahead and be seated. Thank you. I'm going to read just a little further, just to give us a little more context. Now, when they had departed... Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. He rose, took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I shall call my son. Then Herod, when he had saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. All of this, all of these events, all of this takes place in real time and in real space. It is a matter of history. It says in our text here that Jesus, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. Bethlehem of Judea as opposed to Bethlehem of Galilee. See, there was, there was a Bethlehem in Galilee, there was a Bethlehem, Bethlehem in Judea, and Ju- the one in Judea is the one that was prophesied about, right? And they, they speak about that prophecy in this passage. Matthew is sure to have the correct location because it is in Bethlehem Ephrathah, Bethlehem of Judea, that is specified in that prophecy of the coming Messiah, and it is where Herod had killed all those children later in our text had them executed. And and it says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men went to Jerusalem. These are both places that the audience that Matthew was writing to, they were very real places to them. They had been there. They had perhaps even passed through Bethlehem on their way to Jerusalem for a feast day or to conduct business as Jerusalem was a multicultural city and had lots of things going on there. And he was sure to specify the particular Bethlehem because of Micah 5.2, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. He was sure to make it very clear to his audience that these are real places. You've been there. You've done that. You've seen these. This all happened in very real places and in very real time. What does it say? It says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king. That would have been from about 40 B.C. to 4 B.C. And Matthew is not afraid in his writing to get very specific, to specify time and space for his Jewish audience, who would have been able to think back and say, oh yeah, I, I remember those days, I remember those places, I, I, 
Yeah, I do recall something happening there at that time and in that place. And he, he says to them, this is a matter of historical fact. I'm giving you places, I'm giving you times, and I want you to recall those places and those times. It's not once upon a time. For those of you who saw Star Wars yesterday, it's not in a galaxy far, far away. Jesus is a real person. He is really born, and these events are real events in Matthew's narrative as he takes their minds back to times and places that they would recall and put into context in their own lives. At this time and in this place, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Wise men. The Greek word here is magos, from which we get our word magi. And it's, it's a very loosely definable term. It's got a wide range of meaning. Uh, everything from wise counselors in the king's courts to astrologers, that illegitimate uh, mystical art of determining how the stars will tell you what's going to happen in your lives, or even astronomers, those who scientifically study the movement of the planets and the stars, uh, to people who dealt in magical arts, uh, demonic magical arts, to those who are mere charlatans and, and uh, illusionists in magic. Magic. Uh, most specifically, in the Greek usage of this word, it referred to a Persian priestly class. It referred to a, a group of religious philosophers from that Persian area who studied various religious scriptures, who studied the stars, who gave advice at court. They were their respective king's wise men, their court counselors. Using this most applicable definition of the word magi, using this most frequently used definition of that word at the time, the, these guys were Persian, most likely Persian from Babylon. And, and it makes sense because ever since the Jewish nation was removed, the Jews were removed from the nation of Israel, from the land of Judah, uh, the land of Babylon had had a... a great Jewish influence in their court. Anybody remember a guy named Daniel? Anybody remember Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Rolls off the tongue easier that way, doesn't it? Daniel, chapter 2, 48 and 49. It's after Daniel had interpreted a dream for the king. The king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts, and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king, and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court where he'd have this great influence upon all the wise men and upon the court itself. These wise men that we see in our passage today would have had access to the scriptures of God. They would have had the law and the prophets in their hands. And from what we study in the passage here, they studied these scriptures deeply. It wasn't just a, a passing observation of them, but they paid real attention to what they read, and then they applied that knowledge to their lives. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east 
came to Jerusalem. How many of them were there? More than one, right? It's plural. I'm going to give a stab at it. Less than a thousand. Doesn't specify, does it? Except in verse 3, we see something that happens. Verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. So it's, it's likely that these wise men took along with them an entire entourage uh, with supplies for this long journey they went on and, and as they went up to Jerusalem to find this king. And, and you, can, you can see that the, the doors of, of Jerusalem are open and there's this entourage just going through the gates of Jerusalem. It probably wasn't three guys on camels kind of... Uh, nonchalantly traipsing through the desert to make their way to Jerusalem. If we think of it that way, remember Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost? How many people were in Jerusalem? A lot. Do you remember studying that? And they were a lot of people from so many different nations. Jerusalem was multicultural. They, they were used to people coming in and out from different nations. It would have been no big deal if three guys on camels came in. Who, what's the deal there? But this entourage coming into the gates of Jerusalem, seeking the king. They were carrying expensive treasures, gold, frankincense, myrrh. They probably had some soldiers guarding them as they crossed the deserts and were going into Jerusalem. They caused a ruckus. They caused a stir in Jerusalem. Here they come, and everybody knows about it. They can see it. They see this this group coming, and they stand up, and they go, what's going on? And people start talking. Scholars like to point out here that these guys were pagans, that they likely didn't have any real idea as to what they were getting into, what they were doing. They had some kind of uh, knowledge, a, a comprehensive knowledge of Scripture, but they were just going and investigating this, perhaps. And, and yes, these men were Gentiles. And they were definitely raised in a pagan culture. They were serving in Gentile kingdoms. But what do we know about them? From just reading in the passage here, what, what do we know about them? We do know that they had a grasp of the Old Testament scriptures. They knew a lot of things. They, they knew, if we just read the passage here, they knew that a boy was born. Says, they ask in verse 2, Where is he? who has been born. They knew that he had an earthly, fleshy birth, that he was a real child in accord with Isaiah 7.14 and and 9.6. These guys knew that he was the king of the Jews. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? They knew that he was the Messiah in accord with 2 Samuel chapter 7. Who he was... Who he is is not a question in their minds. They know that he is the king of the Jews. They're just trying to find out, where is he? They knew as well that a star had risen to signify his birth. They go in and they ask, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose. Numbers 24, 17. Balaam's prophecy says, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. 
Revelation 22, 16, Jesus says, I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright and morning star. These guys knew that he was king, that he was born as a child, having flesh. They knew that a star had risen to signify his birth, and they knew that he was worthy of worship. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. The word for worship here is, is the word used for giving reverence to a deity, to the worship of a god or the god. They understood that this child to be born would be called mighty god in accord with Isaiah 9, 6, that, that he would be Emmanuel, God with us, Isaiah seven fourteen. right? Their act of worship that we see in verse 11 as they fall before him in worship was not something that suddenly hit them as they saw the child and they went, oh, that's who he is, and hit the ground. They came in with this idea of we know who he is, and we are. they had an understanding going into it. We are going to worship this child because we know that he is God on earth. In my humble opinion, just from what I see in the passage here, these men may have been raised in a pagan culture. Kind of just like we are, huh? They may have been raised in a pagan culture, served in Gentile courts, and have been Gentiles themselves, but they were indeed wise men. In fact, they had as strong of a grasp of Scripture as the Jewish leaders, and they, they, they took it a step further. They had this knowledge of the Scriptures, and they applied it to their lives. They applied this knowledge. What, what good is knowledge without application, right? I know the stove is hot, but I will touch it anyways. Psh, ah, right? That's what happens to kids, right? They know the stove is hot. You tell them the stove is hot, and they touch it anyways, right? Uh, I know this medication is good for me, but I'm not going to take it. I know exercising is good for me, but I'm not going to do it. And so we, we end up casting knowledge aside constantly, don't we? We, ta- we have knowledge, and we don't apply it. The Jewish scribes and the elders would have had just as much of an opportunity to see this star rise. Did they look? Did they see it? Surely they knew about it, right? When when these men saw the star rise, indicating the birth of the Messiah, who is worthy of worship, these wise men began to prepare for an extensive and very expensive journey to find him. It it took them, as we see in, in verse 16... Um, Herod ascertained a certain amount of time from them, two years about. So it, it took them about two years before they actually arrived in Jerusalem. This wasn't just a, a fly-by-night kind of, oh, let's go see what happens. This took time. This took effort. This, took, this was not easy application in their lives. They didn't just hop in the car and drive down the street, did they? They put their time and their money where their mouths were. Literally, they had this knowledge, and they went out, and they did something with it. And when, you know what they did? They took action because they believed 
what they knew. They took action because they believed what they knew. Oftentimes we know things, but we don't necessarily believe it, do we? So these guys travel, and when they arrive, they expect the Jewish leaders would have known where the child is. It's been two years, so they go directly to Jerusalem, and they ask, where is he? After all, it's been these two years. Wouldn't the Jews have known where he was and how to find him by now? Unlike the Jewish leaders at the time, these Gentiles took the same knowledge of Scripture as they had, and they applied it. I want us to to ask ourselves a question. Are we as serious about the active application of our biblical knowledge as these guys were? Do we believe what we know? Are we finding ways to take our faith and our knowledge of God's word out on the road and really doing something? Are are we finding ways to um, bring God's word into the lives of the people that we know at work, at school, in our families who don't know Jesus Christ? And I want us to challenge ourselves and, and think of one way just one. Don't, don't try and think of 20. Don't put too much pressure on yourself. Just one way that this week you could do that with one person. It starts with one. One way you can, you can take that knowledge and turn it into to action, turn it into belief. So as instructed by Herod, these guys continued their search, guided by the star, And look at what these men do when they are about to find Jesus. They haven't even found him yet. Uh, After listening to the king, verse 9, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced. doesn't just stop there. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. It just keeps going on and on and on. They were were beside themselves. They saw the star out there. They said, look, guys, it stopped. We aren't even there yet. This is awesome. We've been preparing years for this, studying and studying and studying. We gathered knowledge, and now we prepare for this two-year journey. We get to Jerusalem. He says, you got to keep looking. We kept looking, and now we're here. They were giddy. They were beside themselves. They were like kids on a playground. They couldn't be quieted. They they were ecstatic, thrilled. And and then look at what they do when they actually find him. They they go there. They see him. They find him. They see him with his mother, Mary. And what do they do? They saw the child with Mary's mother, and they fell down and worshipped him, face on the ground before God Almighty in a baby's body. They set their eyes on Jesus Christ and they, those words from Hark the Herald just keep going through my head. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hailed incarnate deity. They knew. They had a full comprehension of who they were beholding before them. God Almighty as a child. And they responded appropriately. How are we 
about meeting with him. How do you wake up on a Sunday morning? Is it old hat coming to church? Is it just something we do religiously because, hey, that's what's expected of me. I, I, I got to do it, pay my dues. Or are we still excited to this day? Have we gone on this years-long journey of studying, gathering knowledge, and then gone on that two-year journey and then had to go even further and we're still thrilled? Do we fully comprehend who we worship as we gather here? The God who created the heavens and the earth, who laid the foundations, who gave us the very breath that we breathe, who gave us our voices that we declare praise with, who gave us our gifts and our skills and our bodies and everything that we are. He knit it together. These guys had studied scripture for years. When they saw the star in the east, they took two years to prepare for this journey and to travel to Jerusalem. They continued that search even further, not daunted, not discouraged, but more and more excited as the day drew near that they would actually get to see him face to face. Are we giddy to see Jesus? To meet with him in worship? Are we so excited that it can be seen in us? When we actually worship him, do, do we comprehend who we come before in worship? And I'm not talking uh, dealing with it in, in formalities. Are, are we hands in the air, faces on the ground like these guys were? Uh, maybe you're like me and hands uh, clapping and singing isn't what you can do. I, there's something that goes wrong there when I try and sing and clap at the same time. But, but if you can't do that, maybe you aren't a hand raiser. Do, do people hear it in do they hear your love for Jesus Christ in your conversation? Do they see your love for them because of how much Jesus loves you that in your greeting? Do they, they see your excitement about coming and worship? Do they hear it in your singing? Is it a joyful noise you make? Make a joyfuler noise. Make it noisier. Do they, do they hear it in everything you say and do? Do they see it in who you are? This is good, isn't it? to gather together as a family to worship the one true God of creation. We should be excited. We should be the most excited people on the planet. Are we? Let's get there if we aren't. Where are our hearts? These guys weren't worried about where they found him, were they? Just that they found him. So what if it was a little town in Bethlehem? They didn't find themselves going to Bethlehem and go, eh, let's turn around. This can't be it, did they? So what if there was dirt and wood shavings on the floor from Joseph's work? So what if the guy next to me wears a T-shirt or his hat backwards? So what if the carpet is green? In the earlier service, I saw half the people go, where are our eyes? Are they looking down at the carpet? Am I thrilled to know him? Am I thrilled to see him? Or am I preoccupied with other stuff? I guarantee you, if our eyes are on other things or lights or carpet or, or if they're on me, you will eventually be disappointed if I haven't disappointed you already. But if your eyes are on Christ and your heart, your worship is directed at him and that's where your focus is, you will never be disappointed. He will 
always be true. He will always be right, and he will forever be God Almighty. Let's keep our eyes on Christ. And these guys take their application even further because of who Jesus is before them. They present him with gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Verse 11, the last part of it, says they saw Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. Many, many scholars at this point will say, okay, avert your eyes. Don't try and find any significance here, but lest you should read another myth into what is being accounted for you here. But, but I have to say, why did, Ma- why did Matthew specify these things if they weren't significant? It's true that Matthew doesn't tell us specifically what these gifts represent, but he does take the time to tell us that they are there and what they are. Traditionally, people have found in these gifts, just like the hymn that we sang right before the message here, uh, they found gold to represent his royalty, that Jesus is the king. Jesus is the son of David, rightful heir to the throne, born in the flesh. And with the frankincense, they found his deity. In Exodus chapter 30, go ahead and flip open to Exodus chapter 30. You're going to keep a finger there, by the way. Exodus chapter 30 starting at verse 34. In this passage, we're going to read a recipe for incense that was to be holy and set apart for the use of worship of God and God alone. Exodus chapter 30, verse 34. says, The Lord said to Moses, Take sweet spices, stacte and onica and galbanum, sweet spices with pure frankincense. Sweet spices with pure frankincense. Of each there shall be an equal part, and make an incense blended as by the perfumer, seasoned with salt, pure and holy. You shall beat some of it very small and put part of it before the testimony in the tent of meeting where I shall meet with you. It shall be most holy for you. And the incense that you shall make according to its composition, you shall not make for yourselves. It shall be for you holy to the Lord. Whoever makes any to like it to use as perfume shall be cut off from his people. They were to use this incense made with pure frankincense in the devoted worship of God. The priest would burn this incense before God, and Hebrews reminded us and reminds us that, that Jesus is our great high priest, making propitiation for our sins. They brought him myrrh to represent his death. Myrrh was used in Israel for the preparation of dead bodies for burial to, to cover up the smell and as thorough of a knowledge as these men had of Scripture, I'm quite sure they read through Isaiah and Isaiah 53 where it says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken, for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked, with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. They knew he was to die for our sins. Frankly, I agree with all of these insights. Gold for his kingship, frankincense for his deity, myrrh for his death. I also see in these verses these wise men bringing Matthew's audience before an altar 
Did you keep your finger there at Exodus 30? Look at Exodus 30, starting at verse 1. Yes, these are my own thoughts here. Matthew does not explicitly state this, but, but do you see what I see? Remember, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. 30, starting at verse 1, it says, You shall make an altar on which to burn incense. You shall make, of it, make it of acacia wood. A cubit shall be its length and a cubit its breadth. It shall be square. Two cubits shall be its height. Its horns shall be of one piece with it. You shall overlay it with pure gold, its top and around its sides and its horns. And you shall make a molding of gold around it, and you shall make two golden rings for it. Under its molding on two opposite sides of it, you shall make them, and they shall be holders for poles with which you shall carry it. You shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put it in front of the veil that is above the ark of the testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is above the testimony, where I will meet with you. And Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. Every morning when he dresses the lamps, he shall burn it. And when Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight, he shall burn it. A regular incense offering before the Lord throughout your generations. You shall not offer unauthorized incense on it or a burnt offering or a grain offering. You shall not pour a drink offering on it. Aaron shall make atonement on it, on its horns once a year with the blood of the sin offering of atonement. He shall make atonement for it once a year throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. I I think we see in the gifts that the wise men brought, he was bringing them before an altar and worship of God. Altar covered with gold where the incense was to be burned and where some of the blood of the sacrifice for the atonement of the sins of the people was placed. In this account, we see Matthew drawing together historical circumstances to Scripture and prophecy, real time and real place, with the words of God, and bringing into that the gospel message, Jesus Christ, the King, the Messiah, the Anointed One, fully God and fully man, came to die for our atonement, for our sins, for the forgiveness of our wrongs. In this passage, Matthew reminds them, he says, do you remember that entourage of men from the east that came into Jerusalem and caused such a stir? As they thought back, yeah, yeah, I do. Well, this is what they were here for. Let me tell you. Do you remember when Herod had all the children two years and younger executed, slain in Bethlehem? Oh, yeah, I remember that. Well, this is why he did it. Do you know that the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem in accord with Scripture? And that is where Jesus was born? Did you know that he came to die for your sins, to make atonement for you in your place, and to open salvation to people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, even these Gentile magi? Matthew shared the gospel message in a way that connected with his Jewish audience, who, who could look back on these things and now understand what had been happening all along. What's going on in the, 
in the lives of the people in your life? What's going on in the lives of the people in, in your soil, in your sphere of influence lives? Are we listening? Are we listening well enough to be able to set their circumstances into the context of Scripture and show them the gospel? This is happening. This, this horrific thing is happening in your life because we live in a fallen world. Let me show you Genesis where God explains to us just how fallen and why this world is fallen. We can take those, if we're listening careful enough, we'll be able to take people's life circumstances and fit it into Scripture, and they will see there's a God who loves them so madly, so greatly, so deeply that he would send his only son to take on flesh, to, to empty himself of all the glory he had with the Father before time began from eternity past, and he would come and take on flesh. That's how great his love, that he would take that flesh all the way to the cross. That's how great his love, how rich and lavish his grace. Let's share Christ in a way that people can connect with. Let us be wise men. Let us be wise women of God's word, garnering an understanding of Scripture over the days, over the years, and then eagerly applying that knowledge to our lives, taking it out onto the road, into the lives of the people around us, and then with hearts that are overwhelmed, with a focus solely upon him, not letting ourselves get distracted by the other things of this life, but understanding him. This year, as we gather the family around the Christmas dinner table, especially if it's your dinner table, take advantage of it. Share your faith. Talk about Jesus, the historicity of him. These aren't just good stories. This isn't just cute decorations. It's more than that. Let me tell you about it. Take Christ to them. His historicity and his sacrificial love for us. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you. For you've written these letters to us that we would know you more, that we would understand the reality of you. Lord God, help us to share reality with others. Make us tools in your hand. Make us effective, Lord. We know it is your spirit that changes hearts, that changes minds, and we pray, Lord, that you would just use us to do that. We pray, Lord, you would use the ministries of this place. Lord, use the concert tonight. Lord, I pray for all those hearts and all those minds that will be in this room, that they will not just hear pretty music, but God, you would use that wonderful gift of music, that was wonderful, skillful usage of that gift, and you would use that to affect their heart and mind by your Holy Spirit in them. Lord God, use us as tools, we pray. All this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.